to episode 272 of the Winning Six podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee. Joining me as usual, we have Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. Hello, Jordan. <laughs> and making his debut appearance on the pod, I think literally the working definition of long-time listener, first-time caller, mm-hmm. it's Behind the Book Pass contributor, Ben Raman. Welcome to the pod, Ben. How you guys doing? Good. Fanfare. We're glad to have you here. I mean, (laughs) you are the artist formerly known as Suck a Mint on Twitter, which was was a very important cause for Jordan and I. So it's great (laughs) to finally have you join us. And you couldn't have picked a much better occasion uh, because Rowan, and Rowan, if you're listening, we'll talk more about you later. Uh, Rowan was on for the post-game one pod. Which uh, wasn't all that great for anyone. Not the pod. The pod was fine, uh, but the result wasn't great. This time around, you are joining us following a 21-point books victory in Game 2, a 123-102 win over the Celtics. Um, We've a lot to get through in this game, but we've only one place to start. Jordan, you were in the building. Yes, I was. You are wearing your lucky hat. Damn right. And once again, it didn't let you down. <laughs> nope. The streak prevails. You're already making plans tentatively to go to game five. You're they may start- be in the curves. You're starting to take this very seriously, right? This whole you're, yourself as a good luck charm. I, well, I mean, come on. When you're, you're keep hitting black 21 roulette, you got to keep going. I'm on a hot streak. <laughs> I saw people were already funding your uh, Game 3 trip on Twitter. That is true. Yeah, that might be a little too rich for my blood. but <laughs> Don't People have been talking about doing that for me for years, but I would happily pass that over to Jordan. For one, it would be a lot less expensive. And two, he has got a proven track record of good things happening when he's in the building. I'd be at a one-books game and Kendall Marshall. And two, bu- two buildings. So. It's crossed over arenas. Yeah. you're You're the lucky charm. You got to stick yeah. with the winning formula with that hat. Yeah. <laughs> that hat cures all. <laughs> I w- I'm not going to let people in on what the real lucky charm is in this because, you know, it might cause identification at game five. So I'm going to keep I'm going to keep that under my hat, Jordan. But for now, we'll just the lucky hat works as a euphemism. It's a box of lucky charms. I, I said it. There we go. <laughs> it's your book's eye patch, right? It was... yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Enough of that. Enough of that nonsense. We're here for serious business. <laughs> I want to start off with Bud, and I want to start off with the adjustments. 
and really where I want to go with this, I mean, Jordan, you and I, along with Rowan, we talked about on the post-game one pod. Well, I, I, I shouldn't lump the two of you in with I generally said I didn't think there was going to be very meaningful adjustments coming. I thought there'd be some tweaks, but I didn't think he'd completely overhaul things like he did. Um, for that reason, I was not at all surprised when he came out and was like, yeah, adjustments are overrated. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Where Giannis went really, you know, over the top all in on, no, we're not changing anything. We're just going to be us. How impressed were both of you with the books hoodwinking the Celtics <laughs> like this? Not, and I mean, it didn't end there because Sterling Brown's injury, he was he was a game-time decision. I think based on the evidence we saw, he probably shouldn't have been that. He should probably just have been out last night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but still, I would <clears throat> hazard a guess that they had decided quite a bit earlier in the day that Miritich is going to be starting in his place. But it was even later than you would usually get for kind of a last-minute call when that was finally kind of revealed to everyone. So really an incredible job of just playoff <laughs> level mind games and putting the Celtics on the back foot. I'm going to be honest. I think this is my favorite part of all of this. <laughs> of game two, my favorite part is Bud just brazenly lying for multiple days. Brad Stevens ending up like biting his lip angrily on the sidelines <laughs> and the books getting this glorious win. <laughs> Did either of you suspect that this is what we we're going to get? Ben, I know you kind of tweeted about some of Yanis's quotes, and his quotes generally were quite weird, and I feel like now we've we've almost got a greater sense of that. There was clearly a briefing going on about what <laughs> everyone's going to say to the Mission media. control. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any suspicion that this was going to happen, that there was going to be these major overhauls? Listen, give Bud uh, best lead role and Giannis best supporting actor in those interviews <laughs> because, he, I mean, I did not suspect Bud to I, – I thought maybe there could be a tweak to the starting lineup maybe, uh, and I kind of had the suspicion that Miritich could be in play, but the entire switching one through four uh, defensive scheme – switch up kind of just threw me way off guard. I did not think that he was going to go to that right away in game two. Jordan. I, you actually reminded me of Giannis's comments specifically was his exit interview talking about Jabari where he's oh. like, Oh no, 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 no. Like he's not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm like, <"What?" laughs> like, okay. Okay. <laughs> I guess Giannis, everybody's like, Oh no. Like it brought on like this other whole like thing. And of course, obviously Jabari moved on eventually, but it was kind of, I don't know. That felt very, I, I kind of like saw through that immediately. I was like, this seems very ham handed and not, I don't know. It's not, it's not Giannis's nature to say like, Oh, we're not going to change a thing in terms of like that. It you just, really I don't think know. so. I, that, didn't it didn't catch me as something that really seemed strange he is so confident in himself and his own convictions i think what the team was doing i didn't it was maybe just how bullish it was and how maybe dismissive it was of the celtics this idea of oh you know we just play well we're gonna win although that is kind of what we all agreed all along is probably the case here but i don't know i I mean, what I take from it is him not being in Space Jam 2 is a really major loss for, you know, the acting credits. 
Like, <laughs> there's there's going to be. I I'm not entirely sure. It's like Kyle Kuzma. I don't I don't know who's going to make up the monsters this time. <laughs> uh, Kyrie probably when he signs with the Lakers this summer. Jordan Clarkson. <laughs> Jordan Clarkson, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But they're gonna be not just missing Giannis as you know a physical presence as the MVP. They're gonna be missing one hell of an actor. I mean, we've all seen the commercials. We've now seen him just <laughs> brazenly lie to reporters and then go out and find his groove again against the Celtics. Um, we'll get on to that and we'll get on to not just him, but I think the book's big tree and very, very significant that each of him, Middleton and Bledsoe all scored over 20 points. All just really looked great on both ends of the floor. What, maybe their best performance as a trio to date. I, I probably should have given that some more thought or looked mm. at that, but I can't think of many games where all three of them have been quite as good as they were. Um, it might be a game from like last year, just because everything else was crap. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they, they were, the Bucks are so reliant on them all three playing very well because outside of Brogdon was, uh, yeah, yeah. I really, I can't think of many. It, it's hard to think of games where both Middleton and Bledsoe have been so. Like, notably, you're like, wow, both of them are really, really great. And then you have Giannis doing his normal thing, too. Well, it's one we can we can actually put some put some research into and find out for ourselves after the podcast rather than listening to everyone, having everyone listen to us try and figure that out. But to talk about the adjustments more widely, there was obviously the lineup change. That's the most visible one. That's the one that the Celtics knew straight away once that information came true. Then we have... The Bucks switching defensively, mostly one through four, but with a little bit of flexibility in there that did go one through five at times. Um, almost exclusively one through five when Brooke was off the floor, and even occasionally when he was on the floor, did they switch at all five spots? Kind of under discussed, just because it's not out of the ordinary, but still a major change to what they did was on offense the three point shooting, and just the clear message of uh, just literally keep chucking them up there just make sure you get your shots um they attempted 47 triples in total which is the fourth highest single game all time in playoff history and that was kind of apparent from the get-go and the shots weren't falling but i think part of what might have been the realization we've had the talk of you know playing the the math problem all season they made the numbers work and they decided we're just going to shoot so many that eventually some will fall and we will make the numbers work. Let's start with the defense. It's something we have seen. We've seen it effectively in spurts throughout the season. We knew it was there if it was going to be called upon. I was still kind of amazed at just how bold the decision it was straight away in game two to go, okay, this is our, this is our primary defense, essentially. This is what we're going to do. Where do we go from here is my, my first real thought on this. It worked great, but what what is the Bucks' defense now? Or are they in this great position of luxury that they can possibly toy between the two? Maybe not dropping in this series. We've already seen that be burned. But based on what you saw last night, committing to it in this way, has that given the Bucks a completely different wrinkle? Whichever of you prefers to go first. <laughs> I'm going to go with Ben because 
Jordan is never ready to like <laughs> Jordan can if you go first every time but Jordan can have a couple of moments where he come <laughs> up with something to say rather than saying mm, I don't know. Well. Yeah, I mean I think what we saw especially in this game is like how effective that um like Ursan and Mirich-Titch can be in the switching system, like as bigs. We saw Brooks struggle a lot, uh, especially game one um, with the drop coverage. And then in this game, he also struggled defensively, even in the switching offense a bit. He had, I forget his defensive rating. I think it was in the... Do do you know off the top of your head? His defensive rating was... I believe it was around 119, but... Uh, 114.8. 114.8. And yeah. his, his offensive rating was only 90.9, which is kind of even more alarming. They were just... Yeah, more anemic. They were flat out bad, uncharacteristically bad in his time on the floor. And that included him making three pretty important triples. Right. So I think it's it's tough because, you know, obviously throughout the regular season, Brooks has been so impactful on that end of the floor. But with this specific matchup with the Celtics, it's increasingly difficult for him, uh, probably more than any other team. Um, so I think possibly throughout the rest of the series, we'll see how it goes. You might see an increase in Ursan's minutes at the five, um, since he can facilitate that switching style a little more effectively. Like he was a great, he had a fantastic plus minus in his limited minutes last night. Um, I think just by the nature of the style that has worked now in this series that it might be smart when Horford especially is on the bench to kind of give Brooke his minutes. Because uh, I looked earlier and Aaron Baines and Al Horford have exactly shared the floor zero minutes this series. So when Horford's mm. off, Baines is on. Um, so I think – you could hide Brooke a little bit defensively when they do switch to Aaron Baines at the five in the rotation. I think that might be his most effective place to try and uh, affect the defense and be more effective offensively. That's that's an interesting note just before you come in, Jordan, because it's kind of what we've been used to the Celtics doing against the Bucks, And there's reasons to say you should put Horford and Baines out there together at times. Primarily that Horford can just lock in on Giannis. Um, mm. I know it clearly wasn't an issue for them in game one, but I wonder, will we see that change as they look to, I don't know, I guess it depends on what the books look to do, and they're going to probably still be more comfortable with Brooke as opposed to Urson against Baines, even though there's certainly an opportunity for Brooke to exploit him. I, I think there there is definitely... There is a, there's a reason why they're trying to go Marcus Morris and Horford because of just what it gives them offensively and how it kind of rounds them out. But you're kind of looking for Marcus Morris to have a game like he had last night. And if you're leaning into Marcus Morris having a game like that, your game plan isn't going to plan. <laughs> like no. if, it's, if it's not Kyrie Irving or it's not Al Horford, um, or if it's not Jason Tatum, who we might talk about a little bit later, like Jalen Brown and Marcus Morris were the two best players yesterday for the Celtics for me. And Jalen Brown has now had two good games overall. That's not ideal. 
if you're the Celtics. <laughs> like Jalen Brown's a good player, don't get me wrong, but it would be it would be like if we were saying, oh, you know, Brooke Lopez is the star of this series. Yeah. That's not what you want. I mean, that's that's kind of pointing at something that seems like at some point it could come back and bite you. Yeah. Right. And anyway, Morris um, has just been so efficient this series too. Like even at the first game, like he was still four or six from the field, I think, and it just feels like he can't miss. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> Horford doesn't miss. Uh, That's is, true. <laughs> like I, I saw some tweets along this about like Horford having outlier shooting performances. You give Al Horford wide open mid range looks, he's gonna probably make 80 percent of them. Like, he is. Genuinely, it's not something that would come to mind. You think of particularly of a big, he is one of the very best mid range shooters in the league, and I think that's only become less of I guess it gets discussed less in the last couple of years because he has made the same adjustment Brooke Lopez has made, albeit not as extreme. He has stepped out behind the three point line, and he has also been pretty successful at doing that. But I've seen a lot of that in books fans being like, Oh, Horford's gonna have an off game. I mean, if it goes seven games, one of the seven games he probably will. But you can't just be waiting for Horford to start missing shots because he doesn't. Jordan, anyway, I cut yes. across you a couple of minutes ago, so I know you've got something really insightful queued up for me now. Well, I was just I was just gonna say that this may be a series where like we were kind of projecting before it started. Brooke is kind of the obviously the biggest question mark in terms of the players in the starting lineup or at least the regulars in the starting lineup obviously that there has been a revolving door with brogdon spot which who knows what it's gonna be after game three may but, keep revolving as brogdon comes back yeah that, that revolving door doesn't stop but uh um i don't know i just think if you may are okay you're we're what we're talking about after game one they're already they've gone to the switching card but at some point, like from what we saw with the Celtics last night, they were more than content to try to punish those like mismatches or one-on-one opportunities, and that didn't work well well for them. Like Jason Tatum in particular, I think what was he two for ten last night? Yeah, yeah, he he was pretty abysmal. Um, I mean, sure, it's it's one less thing that you can go to, but if you're that good at it. Yeah, you know I mean, it kind of like outweighs like losing kind of that move in chess, or you know what I mean? It, it I don't know. I well, don't this, this is part of explain it. No, this is part of what we were talking about post game one with the idea of adjustments. Was okay if you do adjust for game two, are you kind of showing your hand a little early, and then are you opening yourself to a counter adjustment? And could it come back to bite you? I mean, it's it's actually impossible for us to project that right now, like. Maybe they do. Maybe they have a perfect counter for game three and the books really have to go back to the drawing board again for game four. On the other hand, this might just be the answer and the books could win the next three games and that's it. And they're on to the conference finals. It's like, yeah, I guess we should switch more often. Like there, there is the unknowable in that and it could easily be something that people are saying, oh, did they use it too early? But I do think there are other wrinkles that the books have that they haven't quite broken out. I thought we'd get more jumbo lineups and we're actually now set up in a way that's going to trend towards smaller lineups, which mm-hmm. from that perspective is not a bad thing because if the Celtics do find an answer for that, you can go, oh, okay, you figure that out. Here's five 
guys between 6'10 and 7 foot have fun <laughs> you know like they do still have options and i i remember specifically there was a point in the regular season where we were kind of going this is really weird we're not used to this but it's kind of fun that the books have an obvious plan a but there's also you know you could say that's plan b that's plan c that's plan d and i guess that's what this is for it's to be able to cycle through them um in terms of the switching you mentioned ursan and miritich ben but i mean the difference those two guys make it's kind of when I wrote about Yanis, and we'll talk about Yanis more extensively, but there was obviously a lot of issues with Yanis post-game one. But one of them was, as lots of people point out, as Zach Lowe pointed out, he was dropping back just absurdly far, much further than Brook Lopez. Um, we talked in the post-game one episode about how he just wasn't really showing either the urgency or the understanding of when he needed to go out and contest those shots, even in a way that Lopez was trying to. And really, you're just getting nothing out of Giannis defensively, which was a colossal waste. So obviously, when you change the switching, you're flipping that on its head. You're you're changing to a style that is really setting him up to be as impactful as he can be. And he certainly had plenty of great moments defensively. Um, also, suits Chris Middleton a lot. And I think for as well as he scored, he's having a great defensive series. Like That's a big mm -hmm. part of... Tatum just being like the invisible man is Chris hasn't completely locked down. Soylent Green. Yeah. Um, but where I'm going with this is as much as Giannis, Chris, Bledsoe, they are going to thrive in a switching scheme. They're also guys who can be very effective in the opposite. And the keys to making this work and the keys to paying it off are your role players. I think mm -hmm. that's part of what we saw in game one was just the books weren't getting what they needed as role players on either end of the floor. And it's part of what they addressed in game two. I mean, there's still more to come offensively, I think, out of a lot of them. But in particular, Ursan and Miritich as the bigs and as the guys who are naturally going to be called on to do more, um, particularly with Brooks struggling, both exceptional. I mean, to me, it's, it's not surprising with Ursan. This is... This is, it shouldn't be forgotten. Things went wrong for the Sixers last year. That wasn't because of Ursan, and Ursan played a lot of the five in switch-heavy schemes for the Sixers last year. He's been here, he's done this, and he was quite successful at it. Um, last year, I have the numbers here. In the playoffs of the Sixers, he had a 96.4 defensive rating as well. So, and a, a net rating of 10.8. Through six games this year, he's a 91.3 defensive rating and a net rating of 23.5, um, which does, I believe, lead the Bucks at the moment. Yeah, he's he's first, George Hill second. Um, this is what he's good at, and in this particular matchup, I have I have defended Ursan a lot this year, and when you don't need to, I mean that defense already speaks for itself. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> But I did a lot. I did at times where it wasn't very popular. And part of the reason why was he is not incredibly mobile. He's not athletic. These things go without saying. He's not DJ Wilson, right? Just, <laughs> let's put it out there. No uncertain terms. He's not DJ Wilson. But there are matchups that aren't for DJ Wilson. Um, this one in particular, I know you and I anyway agree, Jordan, that it isn't. And we've talked about it before. 
I don't see a whole lot for him when the Celtics are going through three bigs that are pretty physically imposing and strong and Marcus Morris, Horford and Aaron Baines. That just doesn't seem ideal for DJ. And so you get Ursan, who is not ultra strong. He's not particularly athletic. He's not particularly fast, but he's just enough of all of those three things <laughs> that he becomes super effective, particularly when you're switching. Because what is the thing... I mean, and this goes back to Urson's previous stint with the books. Like, if you're to talk about his defense, I, I've written this so many times over the years, going back to that 2014-15 season. Um, as, as the first instance of it, it's, you talk about Urson's defense, you talk about his positional awareness, which is obviously core to his ability to draw charges. And it's his smarts. So if you put him in a situation where you're giving him the freedom to say, okay, we're going to switch. So you don't necessarily have to cover as much ground. You've just got to stay in front no. of your man. You've got to anticipate what he's going to do. He, know, he, he is so good at <laughs> He had three charges last night. Picked up his 50th of the year. <laughs> his 50th, and he moved to 51 on the year, which is just completely absurd. He missed like 20 games. It is ridiculous. <laughs> his foes, did you hear that thing? We forgot to talk about this at game one. Sorry to cut across. No, go on. There was that, it was, i forgetting who was the sideline reporter, but they had the detail of, um, his phone doesn't recognize his face because he's broken. Yeah, yeah we've heard so that before. Times. Yeah, that's... That came up on fucking Wisconsin stuff before when he broke it most recently. But I mean, he's broken it since, or not most recently. It was when he's broken it since we last heard that. So even if he got it fixed with his phone, I mean, he broke his nose again. (laughs) Uh, There was a great detail in Laurie Nichols' piece for the Journal Sentinel (laughs) where Bud was asked about, you know, the game after he comes back from a broken nose and they're up by 23 against the Hawks. And Ursa can't help himself but to take a charge at like two minutes left. And it's just like, but it's like, yeah, that's what he does. It's kind of hilarious. Cover star of the Mequon Beacon. Yeah, that, that is very true. <laughs> he did that last night, too. I think he took a charge with like 50 seconds left in the game. Yeah, like, it was in the first. <laughs> he was with the garbage time crew. It was like everyone else hadn't played real minutes. <laughs> I'm trying to think who else was. Sterling was the only other Slim player Tim, who logged any real time. Slim Tim. Yeah. Um, yeah. Slim Tim. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, Sterling? Sterling was the only other guy who played any sort of minutes in the game. And Ursan yeah. was still out there. And he played extensively with that unit. And it, just to illustrate, I wish I had been able to track in game what his defensive rating was. Because his plus minus was absurd. And I was kind of like, okay, the Celtics are just dying. It is just the offense crumbles when he's out there, was my thought at the time. So I look it up this morning. Oh, Urson, team best defense rating last night, 70, right? So Celtics scored 70 <laughs> points per 100 possessions when Urson was on the floor, 17.8 minutes. But Urson logged, I'm going to say at least four to five minutes with that garbage time crew. I don't know if either of you have I seen thought like it. I it was more. Do you want to guess? Well, DJ, Fraser, and Snell played 5.4 minutes each. Do you want to guess what their defensive rating was? I know it was. I know that their plus minus was like around minus eight. I think so. They lost some ground in garbage time. <laughs> like one thirty, one twenty-ish. Higher. What? <laughs> um, one fifty. 
Not quite. They they did more than double Ursan's defensive rating, though. How dare they? 141.7. So he was sharing the floor with those guys during that spell, and he finished with a defensive rating of 70. Like, the Celtics just could not score on Ursan. Uh, I tweeted this earlier. There is a possibility that he is to the Celtics, what Al Horford seems to be to the books. And in a lot of ways, that kind of makes sense. Like, this is kind of a matchup that works for him. Now, he has not been good offensively. I mean, if he could start being good offensively. Here we go. Are you ready? Let's do it. I don't know what it is, but I like to <laughs> the third quarter, after three quarters last night, Ursan had a defensive rating of 29.2. <laughs> How many minutes was that? At least. That was 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes and 42 seconds. Net rating of 105.4. Wow. Playing the hits of 60s, 70s, 80s. Oh, there's a there's a classic joke. Um, yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot of Ursan at the... Giannis and Ursan, the other thing with them, if you're going to pair them together at the 4 and 5, which I think we're going to see, they are, even in a switching scheme, those two are completely interchangeable if you want to go more man-to-man in, in spurts. It's like... It's very difficult to game plan against that. It's very difficult to really pinpoint what you're going to have because those two in particular like, are both just as equally as comfortable at either spot. And to move on to Miritich, because Miritich, we talked when the trade went through about, you know, generally a better defender than he gets credit for. Certainly a defender that's improved. Like, he picked up two fouls in three minutes last night and it just seemed mm. like... Uh oh, this adjustment is not going very well. Um, the opening minutes of the game, to be fair, generally gave off the vibe of these adjustments are not going well. He went to the bench. You say, Yeah, that's not ideal. Straight away, Pat Connaughton, who has to play quite a lot of minutes because of, you know, Snell is coming back from injury. Brown is struggling with injury. Brogdon's out injured. Dante's out injured. Like, brief side note, but for all the people who are like, Why is Pat Connaughton playing? Like, there's I'm, no one else. <laughs> there is no one else. I've just listed four reasons why Pat Connaughton's playing. There's only George Hill who could take more minutes. George Hill's about to turn, I don't know, it's a 33 or 34, but he's not necessarily not necessarily the guy you're going to be like, George Hill, let's have 36 minutes out of you. He's got a lot of minutes, too. Yeah, he's playing a lot of minutes, and he's been really, really good. But Connaughton's playing more. You're going, this isn't great. So Miritish comes back in. And if not his two, his very first two possessions when he comes back in very soon after that, he just absolutely like drapes himself legally, I should say, all over Jalen Brown in velvet. Oh, sorry, <laughs> like <laughs> kind of bafflingly so because Brown should have. Right? Yeah, you had like a strip block, block came later. Block block came a little later. I mean, there was the I think the very first possession, Meritich just he couldn't have done more. He was kind of just he was reaching and reaching and reaching, but without ever failing. He was just constantly bothering Brown. Brown couldn't settle, and he ended up making a really difficult kind of floater. Um floaters may be generous. He ended up having to toss a shot up kind of from just around the paint, right as the shot clock was expiring, and it went in. You're kind of like Okay, I mean, that was great, Miritich, so I'm not going to blame you on that one. And the next possession down the floor, he does it again, and he stops him. Like, Miritich only made one triple last night. He was 3 of 10 from the field. 
he was a plus 22 though and it's because it worked it worked defensively and there was this kind of these rumblings before the game from Celtics riders that oh you know the Celtics have a really good track record of targeting Miritich and targeting them on switches um this isn't going to go well for the books and Miritich was like a man possessed I mean, beyond that, Connaughton is worth mentioning here as well. I guess before we move on to some of the more significant players, no, I, I shouldn't say it like that. I mean, we're talking about significant players. But before we move on to the big tree more than anything else, Connaughton started awful, right? You both agree mm-hmm. with that? Yeah. He was blowing coverages on switches, kind of overhelping, double overhelping. Over eager, I think, would be how I'd put it. Like, and he had a really bad game one so he may have been a little too anxious but his overhelping was giving me like you know ptsd flashbacks you know it was like a year ago it's not there hasn't been opportunities to see guys overhelp like that in a long time but in the first quarter he did it at least twice and there was an open three-pointer uh, Gordon Hayward definitely made one from the corner. Yep. I can't, can't remember who the other one was, but while it's happening, I'm just sitting here going, no, not again, not again, not again. Uh, <laughs> enters the building. Oh. <laughs> yeah, kid is going to Mission Impossible style, just rip off his Budenholzer mask. Oh. And it would it would make sense why Bud had been lying to the media for days at that point. You know, we'd say, yeah, of course he's been just completely treating them with disdain. But anyway... No, he dropped them no. with the energy and effort uh, <laughs> after the game. He did. He did. It's true. And we even talked about that on the, the last podcast reluctantly <laughs> because it's just it's they're such dirty words at this point. But it was it was true, but brought it up. But Connaughton found his way is really where I'm going with this. Aside from blowing um blowing coverages and overhelping early, he finished with a defensive rating of 88.9. Um net rating of 20.3 he played 30 minutes like which again a lot of complaining only Giannis Middleton only those two played more than them um but why don't they play more come on right (laughs) I mean if you want to dare bud there's a chance game three pack could play some more minutes um but from those three guys, and I mean, I, I think we kind of take it for granted George Hill is going to be solid whatever they do defensively at this point. He's just been yeah. absurdly good for quite a while. But the level that the role players brought themselves to defensively, for me, I, I do think that is the difference here. It's We can look to, again, Giannis, Chris, and Bledsoe to contribute defensively in a variety of schemes. But for this series and this particular matchup, to me, it feels like this is what's going to get the best out of all those guys for the reasons we just kind of run through. Would you... What would you feel comfortable with? I mean, all three of those guys played well. So if we go into game three, let's assume Brogdon is back. Now, for me, that assumption would probably still work along the lines of he could be limited to 15 minutes. Don't think yeah. less. I, I think 15 minutes um, would probably be coming off the bench. But are you comfortable with all three of those guys we've mentioned? So Ursan, Nico, and Pat getting similar-ish minutes, similar-ish roles. Are you confident that they can replicate what they did in this game? Or was there an element of, 
you know, all of the energy went the right way for the books. And say with someone like Conan in particular, we can we know he started poorly. Did he just get kind of lifted up by what happened around him as the game went on? Or is there reason to believe that those kind of players can repeat this switching defense at the same level? Well, I think with Pat in particular, it's like he's been known as kind of the Bucks' secret weapon in uh, switching sets all year when the Bucks switched, especially against like the Charlotte Hornets, when mm-hmm. they switched to the switching scheme, he's been really successful in that. So I think doing like having Pat repeat this type of defensive performance in particular is promising, uh, especially after the way he just struggled defensively and game one when they weren't doing the switching to how much better it became for him. Uh, I guess in the kind of second portion of game two, when it all kind of started to go with the Bucks way, I think that I think that that could be repeatable. And Brogdon in particular too, is also a better switching defender than he is in the Bucks traditional uh, scheme. So I would look as far as, I think the one role player that drops off is Sterling Brown. If uh, Malcolm Brogdon comes back and is playing about 15 minutes in his first game, I don't think, I highly doubt that uh, Bud's going to go away from Pat Connaughton, especially with the success he had. Sterling's had another game where he just struggled offensively and defensively. And he he even struggled in garbage time too. Like Mm -hmm. the three that he took was like, it was pretty rushed. And who knows how Again, he has back spasms. That stuff doesn't go away lightly. Well, Bud, Bud admitted after the game he's not right. And yeah. um, kind of interesting in this is I thought Snell looked really good in his five minutes, and he looked very different than he's looked in his previous cameos. He just looked a little bit, a little bit springier. Like maybe part of he that, that is, crossover. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, maybe part of that is him. He boyoned, who was it? Semi Ojale. He almost went full Ojale on Semi. The fact that this has become a thing that Tony Snell does now is kind of fascinating, right? It's just like, <laughs> he, is he the most likely book to just drop someone off the dribble? Who he else does it? Last year. He's done it multiple times. No, no other book really does that. It's just Tony Snell. Bledsoe, Bledsoe can do it. He... When he gets particularly crazy. Yeah, when he does his breaks out his spin package and his, his craziness normally to me. Oh, he did have one. Was it against D'Angelo Russell? Night. Oh yeah, it was. It was um, against D'Angelo right after D'Angelo got the All Star bid. Yes, yeah, yeah, that was the one. <laughs> uh, but his tend to be more literally just as he's getting to the rim, he'll just make someone look ridiculous, get there and put in just a hilariously acrobatic finish. But Tony Snell is like, oh yeah, I'm driving from the top of the key here. You are. You're gonna be down your ass in a minute, and it's just like when it happens, you're like, "What? What is going on?" I, just don't, I think it's because nobody expects Tony Snell to drive to the basket because his entire no. career that's really not been what he does. So when he when he even like fakes towards the basket, people just don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's actually been so good at that this year that I wish some of the other elements of his game were better. Um, so that we would have had more of an opportunity to actually see what is going on with Tony Snell's dribble drive game. Um, but Snell, Snell did look to me like maybe that one moment. He did make a tree as well. He had one shot and he made it. That's true. Um, there was just something about him that just seemed a little bit more, I guess, lively. He was 
more like a guy who looked healthy. And it's really unfortunate for Sterling because Sterling looked kind of locked into this rotation two games ago. He played so well down the stretch of the regular season, played great against the Pistons, struggles in game one, picks up the injury, and then struggles in game two. And I'm inclined to agree with you, Ben. Yeah, I think he would be the guy who's likely to drop out. And if if Snell is healthy and looking good, maybe Snell would even threaten kind of any minutes that could be left over there, which is kind of weird. Um, you were talking about Pat and kind of confidence in Pat to keep this up. I'll speak for myself. I have, again, this is probably clear, I have confidence in Ursan in this matchup to be able to continue doing what he's doing. Are we happy with Miritich switching for... Like, he is the guy... It didn't work for them last night, but he is the guy they're going to keep targeting, right? He is, he is the one who, if you're looking at everyone that's going to be out there for the books, the glaring weakness outside of Brook, and even there are probably some things that are less appealing about Brook because of his size, because of his, I guess, track record of blocking shots where you wouldn't be quite as keen. Miritich is, to me, the guy where even if he has a really good game, like he is going to have to be ultimate level of locked in. He's going to have to really be super intense every time he takes the floor in the defensive end because they're going to be coming for him. Maybe that helps him to lock in like that, but I would have a little bit of a worry about him in this game as the games go on. Do either of you share that, or are you seeing anything to give you some confidence? Uh, I think there's definitely, as we saw early in game two, uh, definitely the potential for him to pick up some early fouls, and that can kind of hurt the rotation after that. He does have a lateral quickness, though, to kind of switch on to more you know, wings, uh, as opposed to bigs, I just, I'm not sure unless he's locked in the way he was after he came back into the game, after picking up those fouls, it's, you know, if he's gonna have the ability to stay with those guys, um, without picking up fouls. I think I probably fall in the middle in that you're going to live with what he's, he's going to be exploited to some degree. And you're relying on your other four defenders, which, I mean, if we saw, you see more performances like that, I mean, this series is going to be, you know, going to be a good one for the Bucks. But I agree with Ben. I think, like, not just his lateral quickness, but his hands are pretty quick for a guy his size. Like, he was, I think he had two deflections, but it just felt like he was really kind of, especially in help scenarios when he's not being, you know, kind of targeted. He really comes in the paint really just kind of mucks it up. And then, you know, Boston had a couple turnovers on those. Um, and, I mean, you know, this is happening in a game where he went three for ten from the field, one for five from three. So, say if he shoots a little bit better, you're going to live with what you're going to get on, on the defensive end. Like, it's just all about kind of, like, getting that balance of of everything that I just think if if – even if it's not as good as it was last night, I think you're going to – you're just going to have to live with it at this point. Yeah, and he wasn't acquired for his defensive skills. Mm -hmm. That's, no. you know, obvious. And when you see he's a plus 22 on the night last night, obviously he was locked in. But even if he, you know, like like you said, if he's not as effective on the defensive end, hopefully he makes a couple more shots. And, it, you know, you live with what he brings defensively if you have other guys like the Bucks do that can effectively switch in that scheme. 
I, I guess I just have a thing with switching. That doesn't always apply. Like, I mean, there are examples. DJ, I think in most matchups, is an example of an exception to this. But for all Mirtich's size, and it's not like he's weak, there is still something that is kind of naturally stringy about his frame. Mm-hmm. He is, he is like, a, like he's being stretched out a little. <laughs> and if you look at guys who generally are really, really at their best in switching schemes... They kind of have stocky block builds. And it, it is interesting that we talk about Ursan. We talk about Pat. Like, they're almost very similar. If you just kind of scale them up and down, you put the different positions in some ways. Um, that's probably very insulting to Pat Connaughton, who is a known <laughs> workout freak. Dual athletes. Yeah, but you get the general, like, their natural body shape. They have really broad shoulders. They've got broad bases, which means... You know, even a smaller guy, there's kind of more of them to get around. Even if you've got a quickness advantage, if they're smart enough and know what way you're going to go, if they know your tendencies, they can use their body to defend you, to slow you down, and possibly even invite the help over. There is something about Miritich that I just feel like, you know, if Kyrie ends up on Miritich, and this applies for no, no less, I guess, in a lot of ways for Ursan, but if Kyrie ends up on Miritich, I don't see any way that Kyrie isn't scoring. <laughs> well, then I guess if he plays like he played in game two, it's kind of the same scoring at all, which that was Kyrie Irving's worst playoff game of his career, um, <laughs> numbers-wise. So I guess we're going to see a response for that. He was also, he was 9 He was a little flat. He was a little flat. His flat, his his jumper was as flat as the earth last night. Well, it wasn't really. He had that one insane high arcing looping kind. It was really a jumper. It wasn't even kind of a floater. I don't. You maybe didn't quite in arena by the baseline, right? Yeah, kind of by the baseline, and it it did go up above like the top of the backboard and just like fall down. Was he behind the backboard when he shot that? I, th- I feel like it went over he was, the backboard. He was at least level where it had to kind of arc. It was a horse shot. Yeah. <laughs> That's my yeah, we, do you want to talk more about your... No, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, let's move it on to... I mean, we've talked for a long time there. I've enjoyed that, but I don't know if everyone listening will be as eager to talk about Ursan, Miritich, Pat. Uh, so let's talk about the big tree who were, as we alluded to earlier, incredible. Maybe Are we they're... talking about Larry Sanders being the draft pool for the big three? No, but I... Larry! There's a lot of there's a lot of books names in there that I feel like we might end up talking about the big three. Charles Boozer? You know, I have... <laughs> I it's Charles Boozer. Uh, Drew right. Gooden's. Drew Gooden's there. As a, you know? Adam, you mentioned you mentioned on Twitter uh, how you may have to uh, mm-hmm. make Tatum a part of the fraud squad. Fraud squad. Uh, fraud that's squad. a great that's a great big three team name, if you ask. Oh, Lowry, Lowry Simmons and Tatum. They could team up there sometime with the way they're they're all looking. Uh, <laughs> ta- um, let's do it. You made me do it. It's your fault, Ben. So I can't be held accountable. You can direct this with Ben, but. Like, we were only freshmen. Tatum is supposed to be really good. <laughs> and we I, look, we've all seen good things from him. But again, this is a guy that, much like Simmons, like, you talk about building Anthony Davis packages around. And if I'm the Pelicans, I'm like, 
no thanks. Two of ten when Chris Middleton's guarding him. And he was like, what, two of seven in game one? I think he's no. four. I think he's four or seventeen. I, think, I don't think Bill Simmons is still willing to include him in Davis trade talks. Uh, but just the kind of the way he is being hyped up. And largely I felt, you know, it was fair. Like he had bad games last season again where Middleton did a really good job. But as the season, MVP. as the series went on, he did manage to get going. Maybe that will happen again, but he's just so peripheral. And he's not even doing anything defensively. You're like, look at this guy's physical tools. Look at what he should be, and he's doing nothing. It's just he joined the club. He's you know, <laughs> Kyle Lowry is a different kind Here's of member. <laughs> Kyle Lowry is like the captain of the fraud squad, but <laughs> there's a team emerging with Simmons and Tatum. I mean Invisible Tatum. <laughs> he's not Simmons. I'll, I'll well I'll give him is he's not Simmons, but there's something there that I'm just like Man, your, your team really needs you right now, and you're giving them five points on two of ten shooting. I would have thought he played if <laughs> you know I hadn't been seeing the box score. Oh, the only reason you knew he played was because Chris Middleton was getting so many wide open trees. Like, <laughs> like, what is going on there? Anyway, that's Ben's fault, uh, not mine. <laughs> I didn't intend to pick on Tatum, but here we are. Uh, let, let's start with Middleton, you know, just on a related subject here. Like we've all talked. Chris Middleton to death over the course of the season, over the course of his book's career, but I think particularly this season. Uh, he came out, had a great game one. He didn't get the ball enough in the second half, and I don't think that was entirely his fault. I mean, what can we say about that second half anyway? It was just kind of a mess. He picked up right where he left off and then some. And as I wrote when I when I did the grades piece of behind the book pass in this game this morning, like this win, as comfortable as it looked, it belongs to Middleton. And maybe overall you could say, oh, Giannis was was the the clear star. He was the MVP of this game. Um the books are out of this game, possibly out of the series, and facing a whole bunch of incredibly difficult decisions if Middleton didn't single-handedly keep them afloat early on. Because the shots weren't falling for anyone else. When the first quarter finished, uh, Bledsoe had just just basically at the buzzer uh, scored his first two points. Giannis didn't have a field goal in the first quarter, so that was not going all that well. And yet the Bucks were only trailing by five points because Chris was already knocking down triples. He went on to shoot seven of ten from deep. And he was pulled pretty early, like right at the start of the fourth quarter. Um, which I think was recognition from Bud. Yeah, this guy is maybe the most important player we have right now because we can talk and we will talk about all the the smart adjustments Giannis made individually and all the great pieces of play he produced on Tuesday night. I'm not sure how easy it is for him to do that if he didn't get a performance like that from Middleton. I think he owes a big thank you to Middleton because once Middleton starts shooting like that, and honestly, once Bledsoe starts attacking, like I think this is the big thing here. Going into game three, what did the Celtics do? Because if Middleton and Bledsoe are showing some form like that, you know, trying to wall off Giannis is not enough anymore. Like they cannot just let Chris Middleton do that. They have no chance. Middleton doesn't find corner shots all that often, which is this is no. something we've talked about before. He's deadly from the corners, but he rarely ends up there. 
And again, I don't know who was guarding him for a lot of it, but he just constantly found his way to the corner wide open. <laughs> he noticed there was no one willing to cover him there. And over and over again, it was Horford who had to keep uh, basically kind of cheating off of Giannis or the big and trying to go and contest it. Because again, I don't know where um, the small forward uh, was, but that for me was the big thing. It was Chris Middleton. And we've now got two great games to go with seven great games against the Celtics last year. And at this point, I mean, he cannot be any more in their head and in the Celtics fans head to produce that game before the series switches to TD Garden, I think makes a really interesting dynamic because on top of all the worries they have about Giannis on top of trying to figure out the switching defense on top of trying to figure out a way to answer you know, this team that shoots 20 more three-point attempts than you in a game, they're now like, Chris Middleton had 28 points in 33 minutes. <laughs> like, what What do we do with that? How scarring is Chris Middleton to Celtics fans at this point? That was obvious throughout the regular season because you'd see them tweet about it all the time in a way that literally no other fan base does, really. Like, he has What's good games, but... Not like, I don't know what the Celtics did to Chris Middleton. I don't know what, like, does he just, does he have a fear of leprechauns? Does, that, does he just get, he sees, <laughs> he sees the logo and it just brings something out of him. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Chris Middleton, I saw this, is 35 of 55 on three-point attempts against the Celtics in the postseason. He is the only player in NBA history with 50-plus playoff three-point attempts against a single opponent to have made at least 60% of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, Here's another one. That is truly stunning. <laughs> per, per basketball reference, he's shooting 71.4% from three, which would tie the best three-point percentage from a player through the first two games of a conference finals series. Conference semifinal series. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, that. I was saying, oh, are we in the conference finals there, Jordan? Um, Maybe. No, no. <laughs> I mean, for you in the building, right? Because I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, I'm genuinely curious because I'm guessing you felt this even more. Like, that start, not good, right? No. And the anxiety has got to creep in. How apparent was just Middleton single-handedly keeping the team going? And also, how important was it to the atmosphere? And I think I, I've talked about this to you before, and there was a weird kind of hubbub about you know the atmosphere after the game. Um, the atmosphere actually came across great on TV last night. Yeah, It, it really sounded great. Uh, we've talked about this before when I said, oh, it sounds quiet where you've been at games. And you said, no, it was actually great. Last night, it sounded great. Chris Webber, um, this is the only thing he said that I'm going to reference from the <laughs> broadcast, but he he talked about how loud it was, and he was notably the person who criticized how quiet it was. It was so loud, Chris Webber called a timeout when he didn't have one. God, that's funny. That's 30-year-old <laughs> reference. That is a low blow. I mean, I'm not going to praise him, but that's going to hurt the man. <laughs> uh, if he tunes in, and he might, I don't know. Uh, it's gonna sting. What if Marvin Albert tunes in? Well, that's just the stuff of dreams. Yeah, he, he'll go, maybe he'll it will hit him, and he'll go, hey, You know what? There is something just a bit more, a bit more suave about Marvin Albert. Maybe I should start going by Marvin. Why shorten it? 
I like to think that's what would happen if Marvin Albert shoots it. Um, anyway, Jordan, I was asking you about the Chris Middleton effect inside Pfizer Forum on Tuesday night. Well, I mean, I think he had 20 points at halftime, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds right. I don't know. I think at a certain point where, like you said, it was pretty tight throughout all of the first quarter. And even in it, – it, it changed after that Giannis dunk. This is I'm how fitting that I'm answering a Chris Middleton question by talking about Giannis. Um, it changed with the Giannis dunk in like the second quarter. I think it was over Baines or something like that. But a lot of that again, like every three that Middleton hit, it everybody was like getting crazy. But then it would be followed up with you know a couple of minutes of just kind of ragged offense, and then Celtics hitting a good shot or whatever. But like you said, he really kind of like at least like gave him the spark to <laughs> hang in there basically. And then everything eventually fell in line. But I mean, he was all the threes that he hit were pretty, I think there was, Oh, I should have looked it up before we podcasted, but um, like all of his threes were in like the like run of play too. Like, I think only one he had, there was like that turnover maybe second quarter that he just like nailed. And it was like starting to like get, uh, their late second quarter surge again going. But other than that, I mean, again, he was just fantastic and has been fantastic this whole series. Just fantastic. fantastic. That's not... That... Anyway, uh, the other thing, though, that I think was most... Eh, you know, might have been most notable. It was... The pace was, for the large part, I think the one big thing that they didn't figure out in the first half. And it was one of the most important and obvious adjustments they had to make um, to get Giannis going, but also to create quality shots. They just had to stop allowing the Celtics to set up their wall um, and to really just get organized defensively. And between what they did in the first half to... Uh, I think they had a 1-0... Their, their pace was at 102 for the first half, and it went to 110 in the third quarter before falling off again. And obviously the third quarter, I mean, is the game. And um, mm. that's that's where they blew it open. They won the quarter 39-18. But they blew it up like the Bradley Center on that winter day. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay, Jordan. Uh, Chris Middleton to me was equally important as Giannis in basically bringing the pace up a few notches. It doesn't show, and I, I think it's not something he'll get credit for from this game because he had one assist. So at a glance at the box score, you're not going to talk about his playmaking, talk about his passing. But he was basically taking his uh, equal share with Giannis of, okay, let's inbound the ball to him, and I'm going to push, and I'm going to start and initiate the set. I'm going to get us moving. And, you know, saying said is really the service to a lot of what they were doing in the third quarter because it was free-flowing, it was very much had the feel of read and react. But his intent in doing that, not necessarily something we associate with him, because we think of Chris taking up the floor and the ball in Chris's hands, it's going to end up in an ISO possession. It's, it's going to be pretty static and stagnant. And there were a couple of shots in the second quarter that fell along those lines when it was clear he was red hot, and I think just... Nothing else was happening, so Bud may have just said, uh, yeah, okay, let's give Chris the ball and go ISO because we need to do something to try and hang on here. But to me, that was in the third quarter, the way he did that. And he didn't score as much in the second half, but that was a really big deal 
And a big step, I thought, for him and just, you know, acting like a leader, not just in terms of his demeanor or anything, but literally taking control of the game and kind of dictating how the books would play. We expect that and we ask of that of Giannis. But I thought Middleton did that as well as making seven of ten three-pointers on Tuesday. And it like you just can't overstate how big that is. The Celtics don't have an answer for that. Like there's all this talk about the Celtics' talent, and after game one, it came up, oh, they're a more talented team. They are until you see a game like this, and then they're not. And it's then like, okay, how do they deal with this? Because as good as Horford is, he's not going to give you the scoring punch that Middleton at his best is going to give you. Or then what happens if Bledsoe plays at this level? Like, is Marcus Morris or Brown Terry's, or Terry Rozier is going to fling up, step back, long twos? Even a, another interesting one, I think this is one you'll specifically want to talk about, Jordan, because you've been kind of against this whole notion that was bubbling up recently. There's one particular plus-minus on the Celtics bench which stood out to me. I don't know if you know which one. On the bench? On the bench. Not semi-Ozelay. No, not semi-Ozelay. <laughs> I don't know. Gordon Hayward. Oh. Gordon Hayward played 31 <laughs> minutes. Do you know what his plus-minus was? He played 31 minutes? He played 31 minutes. He was god-awful. Well, um, yeah, we're getting Gord, to Gord awful. <laughs> Uh, plus minus. I'm gonna go like it's gotta be 20s, minus 20 something, minus 30. Oh, minus 30 and 31 minutes. Uh, one of five from the field, only three assists. He took five shots, five shots, no rebounds, only three assists. Like Hayward can, I thought he was back, create <laughs> taking five shots and not setting up teammates. Yikes. Yeah. Like where what is Brad Stevens doing on that? Like we were talking about Pat Connaughton's minutes. What what are you doing when you're letting Gordon Hayward do that? Um and a lot but, of a lot of the talk I know I, I just but a lot of the talk about like him being quote unquote back is getting to the rim. And if I looked last night, Celtics only shot like forty five percent from the rim, which was way different from game one. And they did it's not like they attacked the rim all that much to begin with. But like that takes away from him trying to find his rhythm and trying to find a rhythm for their bench because outside of that, you're relying on Terry Rozier, who's not good. <laughs> Plain and simple. It felt like he was eating Pat, especially alive on those like kind of pick and roll sets where he'd kind of just get yep. a little floater in the in the lane in game one. And then mm -hmm. once they switched to switching, he just disappeared. I mean, we mentioned that um that tree you got when when Pat blew the coverage early in the game. That's his only field goal. Yeah, so that's right. His only field goal is like the most wide open tree that he just just kind of fell to him. He didn't even have to do anything for. So I'm not sure his offensive impact could be any less than it was in that game. Um. Anyway, that was a side note. Any other thoughts on Chris? I mean, it, it's kind of it's almost hard to find <laughs> to find the analysis. For this because it's just like yeah that was incredible that was a near perfect game from him like particularly for his skill set and what he what he can do he can't do and it's, and it's optimized it's it's not like last year where you know like you said like it a lot of it was like do what you want to do do tough shot express and that was obviously fine and dandy for them like because it was literally clutching to the series of 
of trying to make it a you know try to win it last year. But like this is it's it was much different compared to last year where he's hitting threes, he's pulling up into threes too, and it's like this is what everybody was kind of wanting throughout the whole season. And we saw like glimpses here and there, and obviously, you know, that can be rehashed to death. But that's what Chris Middleton brings you when well, he does his best. That's interesting, and I hadn't actually given it a thought, but it's really obvious when you say it. Like, it's obvious it's his best game of the season, but it's also like by a million miles the most natural he's looked in in the book system playing actual football. You know, not yeah, not yeah. with the system looking to, you know, accommodate him, like. They let him have a couple of those shots when things were going well for him and not so well for anyone else. But like those seven of ten trees, they were they were within the system. They were doing the things that he's kind of struggled to do all year. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, if a team's gonna play pay this much attention to Giannis, I can do these things. Uh, I've you know, it may have taken uh what are we at, 89 games of the season and whatever preseason was four games, 93 games under Budenholzer. But that was a game where it was finally like, oh yeah, okay, I've got this. Which if that yeah. continues, like completely changes him as a player. I'm not expecting him to do what he did last night on any kind of regular basis, but just the basic structure it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And Jordan noted the pull-up threes. Like he was taking pull-up shots in like kind of semi-transition and that's not really what you see him doing for most of the year. And then the amount of corner threes, like we were talking about before, it's just completely within the flow of the offense. It's very unique to see and not just kind of tough shot express like we saw in even game one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, and look, like we saw it in game one and we saw it last year and it may well come up again, this series, I think particularly in this series, possibly against the Raptors, if they were to go forward, like there, there is a place for tough shot express. There is a time and a place where he is the guy on the team who can do that, and you may need him to do that. I think the only other player who can really do something similar to that would be if he gets back to any kind of health. Brogdon can do a little bit of, okay, I'm, I am going to go a little bit ISO here, and I'll either lull you into false sense security, get to the rim, or I am comfortable pulling up and shooting over you. Um, that has value, but. It's in this kind of game when the team clicks, like that's been the struggle. Him just fitting in as part of the team unit. It's not like he's looked out of place when everything's gone well, but this time everything went well and he was right at the heart of it. Um, and that is just beyond encouraging. Um, we'll leave Giannis to last because, I mean, we normally talk about him first. Bledsoe. I couldn't be more happy for Bledsoe. I tweeted this last night, but he started the game pretty ugly offensively, but his defense was locked in. He was like laser focused from the opening tip. He gave Kyrie Irving no space to breed. That if he continues to do that, um, Kyrie's probably going to get pretty irritated and may just, you know, kind of lash out at that at some point because it was just as, as overbearingly <laughs> making your presence felt without being like, overly physical in any way like absolutely nothing illegal um but he was so close that even he had his first two fouls he picked up were the just... second one was no first one was worse first one was worse rosier fell over his own feet oh that's right yeah. like very clearly on the replay fell over his own feet 
but it's just Bledsoe is right there on top of him, just making his life hell that the officials are like, mm, must be a foul. Rozier can't have just fallen over himself when that is exactly what he had done. But <laughs> the <it's>, Pumas. <laughs> maybe that's what happened to Sterling too. Um, there is something to that approach though. It's kind of like what we, right from when he was traded, the ideal Bledsoe, the Bledsoe we dreamed about as a fit for the books was that guy. We know he doesn't bring it every night. But this was a game where, you know, he had to flip the switch. Like, there's, you don't bring it every night, but there has to have been a conscious decision. Okay, game one was a disaster. Last year was a disaster. I also had a disaster against the Celtics in the regular season. So this time it's going to be different. I'm going to make it different. He made that decision and he made it work. His defense was phenomenal. Um, Kyrie, four of 18, one of five from deep, nine points. Um, only four assists and three turnovers to counteract them. As I mentioned earlier, his worst and eleven assists in game one, right? Mm-hmm. His worst playoff game ever. He was what was he twenty six and eleven in game one? That sounds right. Um, Rosier, who look is worth mentioning because we all we all know the story. I don't need to give kind of a last time on Buck Celtics. Um, Terry Rosier, two of ten from the field, also nine points, only two assists as well. Like, if those two guys are combining for 18 points and six assists, we talked about this heading into the series. The Celtics are not the offensive team that they occasionally look like. In all reality, they're not very good offensively. They just have one of the most gifted offensive players in the league. And if he gets in a flow, you have really good facilitators around him and it can kind of just pick up momentum, snowball, and become something that's actually quite effective offensively. But at its key kind of component parts, not all that stellar offensively. And if you just limit those two guys like that, not a lot they can do. Now, we have to have the awkward discussion after game one. Before the series, I was all in on Bledsoe. This was it. He was This was his redemption. Post game one, uh, I had to kind of get Jordan Rowan to talk me off a ledge because I was like, it's happening again. I can't believe we're going to have to go through this. Now he comes back and does this. So we're not just asking, you know, is he going to continue this? Is Bledsoe going to follow this up in his next game? We're asking, is he going to follow it up in his next game when he goes to TD Garden and he's got like 18,000 people probably relentlessly mocking him from start to finish? Like he is going to get it. He's going to get it in a way that most players wouldn't handle well. And in his case, he happens to be Eric Bledsoe. So he will, you know, he shouldn't handle it any better than any other player. He should handle it worse. Um, Sixers play-by-play radio commentators could attest to this. <laughs> Are we expecting, I, I don't want to even say confident, because I don't know how you could be confident, but from what you saw on Tuesday night, is there is there any expectation, is there any hope that, yeah, he could just, he could just do this. He could just see out the series like this. He may have decided, I'm not letting this happen to me against this team again. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough going into Boston. Uh, you're going to probably... What's the over-under of Drew Bledsoe jerseys? Which, uh, you're, are gonna be probably, Drew is probably going to be there. Drew Bledsoe, <laughs> I would be shocked if Drew Bledsoe was not courtside. Genuinely, I would be shocked if Drew Bledsoe was not courtside. <laughs> Yeah, um, 
it's tough because you know we've seen a large sample size of Bledsoe being affected by the Celtics in particular in the playoffs. He's he had a good series against Detroit. Uh, San sends one game, and then you know he struggled in game one in Milwaukee. So I'd really, really like to think that he's he's had some sort of breakthrough here. Um, I think that it might be – I hate to say this. I think it might be kind of a fluctuation throughout the series. I think he might have a game or so where he's looking on like he does tonight, and he might have a game where he's hopefully not as terrible as last playoffs, but at least kind of just fading into the background a bit like he did in game one. I don't think he had like a terrible game in game one. He just didn't do what he can do. And then that doesn't unlock, you know, that upper level of what the Bucks offense can be with his penetration. Like when he can get to the rim, it unlocks so much for other players. So I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I can't give you a def- definite answer right now, but I think that it might fluctuate through the series. If you can't give me a definite answer, I've got no hope of getting one from Jordan Tresky. Has Bledsoe turned the corner? Not unlike when he turns the man around and puts down a crazy finish. I don't know. But I am hopeful. I Like I said, I agree with Ben. I think it was he didn't influence the game at all in game one. That was It wasn't like he you know did his – we won't rehash last year's playoff series, but – it wasn't like I, it was. I, I kind of think that is bad, though. If you don't influence, oh the no, game, it's bad. It's like bad. I, I think the problem is there. You're both right. We have such an extreme scale with Bledsoe that you know we could say bad for Bledsoe is really bad. Like it's unimaginable for some other players on the books because he's just going to end up in some involved in some stuff that no one, other guys are just going to see past. So I get your point, but. Any other player, like that would be the baseline for bad. That would be the extreme end of the scale. Oh, yeah. It's just because we've seen like him get crossed over and lost. And we've seen that, you know, I don't know who that is, that all of that stuff factors into the other element where you're like, no, yeah, it wasn't that bad. He just didn't have an impact on the game. <laughs> <laughs> and who's to say? I mean, he might not, he might just fling the ball, you know, like. Nine or thirty minutes into the game, at Marcus Morris and get ejected. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I think the the one concern though, still with that, and it like, if we could have any confidence that Bledsoe is just going to come out and play to say the next three games like that, series is over. Not sound like Paul Pierce. Yeah, he's, here, he's but the series is over. It's like if he plays like that, the Celtics aren't going to win because Kyrie is going to struggle relatively i'm not saying he's going to have what he had in game two but he's not going to go off in the way that the celtics would need him to and that would be that the fluctuations open the door though and that's like the whole series may well just hinge on Bledsoe. that's not it's not like it's something that was complete it's it's not like that's news to us now i think there was a very strong feeling that that could be the case going into the series um, certainly the matchup between him and Kyrie and Rozier, how he'd fare against their point guards was something that everyone had kind of circled as, okay, this is kind of important if you can at least hold your own or just kind of, you know, lose this with dignity rather than what we did last year. The other matchups should take care of themselves. 
we've you know he's right there he's 50 50 true two games um I, I mean maybe that works as long as his good game coincides with just the worst possible games for irving and rosier then you say yeah okay that's gonna should be fine should balance out but having dropped game one and you know you get into this where if it's going to go back and forth back and forth what happens that's just the one thing and this is not going to surprise anyone because i've been this way for a little while i'm very confident with the book's chances in this series very very confident the one thing niggling in the back of my mind though is eric bledsoe yeah uh i'm not saying i want him to get into this headspace but it would be great if he dropped a bruce irving in one of the post-game interviews <laughs> we'll slip up <laughs> yeah i i don't What's know that? how Kyrie would react to that <laughs> like i genuinely who, who, don't know who knows how he reacts to anything exactly his posts. brain is an interesting thing um mind is an enigma I had I had the experience. Uh, I have once in my life been credentialed for an NBA game, and it was a Celtic Sixers game, which is kind of the gift that keeps on giving, considering just how relevant these two teams seem to be to us. But as I practiced, I had this decision to make, and it was: do I stay standing where I was, and have I don't know someone possibly insightful come out and say something interesting? Or do I take like five steps to my right with everyone else and join just the craziness that was, let's go and hear what Kyrie Irving's going to say. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was just before that trip he had. wasn't a flat earth, but he followed that up pretty soon after with something else ridiculous. And he had just said that and everyone wanted to get the next like just crazy Kyrie quote. And I was like, no, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to talk to JJ Redick. And that was a, I mean, that might be on brand for me. Yeah, that might be on brand for me that I was like, yeah, I don't, I have no regrets about this. He might be the bigger star, but I just don't care about that nonsense. Um, so yeah, maybe if he challenges Irving <laughs> in that way, who knows? He could completely just fold on himself, or he could turn into a Terry Rozier like Supernova. <laughs> like when we think back, I mean, for all the things about last year and Celtics fans before the series, I was like, oh, we did this without Kyrie and. Terry Rozier is never going to play better than he played in those seven games again. No. Like, he was freakishly good. He was like an all-star. Like, a legitimate all-star. preparing a match from them. <laughs> they, they may still be after <laughs> two of ten, nine points. Um, Terry Rozier time. But, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see how Bledsoe goes. I do have a counter if Drew Bledsoe's courtside. I think the books have to plant their own personality courtside. Gruber? No, I'm talking about the latest member of the Bucks family, Biz Marquee. <laughs> and did you see the halftime performance? I I did see clips of it. You saw clips of it. Okay, Jordan, yeah. did you? Now, we already established everyone. Jordan went to the game, right? Yes. So you're probably going, why is Adam going to ask him, did he see any of the, the halftime performance? So the performance happens, and I'm like, oh, my God. This is, I mean, this is at least three pod podcasts worth of material here. Let me message Jordan and talk about this. I'm like, Jordan. And Jordan's like, oh, what? Oh, I missed that. I was gone for food. I didn't even get food. It was too busy. What were you going for? I was going for a piece of pizza. The line was so long. 
What are you expecting? I don't know. I don't. I well, I kind Have of, you not I, seen all the empty seats at the start of third quarters? Well, you're my. You know what my problem was. You know what my problem was. Why am I talking about this? No, because I'm making it. <laughs> well, because I okay. So I, there was a closer one to get pizza. Problem was, only credit card I had cash on me, so I had to go all the way to basically directly halfway across, and it was literally lined off, or lined up. Perfectly so. I wanted to watch the game. Yeah. My plight. So, in the time since, have you seen any of the clips of... No, I've just heard Mr. a lot Markey. of grumbling. <laughs> um, first of all, Just a Friend is a classic. Oh, yeah. Like, this is a man who has... I'm not going to say the hits to bring out, but he has a hit. And a hit. he has been playing it. And as a result... Like I think he was at a Timberwolves game, their final game of the regular season, very recently. Anyway, like he's seems to be at a Midwest NBA tour right now. Oh, he might have done a Pistons game during the first round, um, but as a result, he was just thoroughly miserable while performing this. And those of you familiar with Mister Biz um, will know, not the most melodic of fellows at the best of times, you know. <laughs> Not the silkiest <laughs> vocals. Well, with age, they have not improved. But I see a forum where 90s rappers go to die. Well, mm. that's what I want to talk about because the you know, books <laughs> have had a checkered, a checkered history with rappers this year. Um some might say, you know, past their prime rappers. But with one hit. <laughs> I, uh, that's maybe unfair on Busta, but I'm not going to entirely disagree with you either. But Bismarck, he came out and he uh, basically provided his sermon to the people of Pfizer Forum, with the exception of Jordan, who wasn't prepared to sit in a seat for it. He offered uh, what I would guess is his core piece of life advice. And the books came out inspired and rolled off their maybe their best and most important quarter of the season, their most important quarter in almost 20 years. Um, Genuinely not an understatement. The book's most important quarter since 2001 was the third quarter on Tuesday night. And it came straight after after Biz gave the crowd the business. And I think he's got to be honorary mascot now. He's got to be... I mean, Bango's untouchable, but below that, I mean, Mrs. Bango, some of the mini Bangos, I think we could swap them out and just permanently employ Biz. Maybe let him do some of his other hits hits in inverted commas and we'll see what happens but that's who i would bring to boston and have him sit jen if he's not back for game five they've missed a trick i mean i don't know how eager he'd be to i mean sing the song ever again let alone come back and do a books game but yeah Giannis. um <laughs> i even made Giannis wait until after i talked to his um was an inauspicious start that had me worried most particularly again not pushing pace like he normally would and that was maybe the strangest element of game one for me because that's a choice it was like before the celtics could impose their will on him he was taking the ball up the court slowly strange one not making a lot of sense but you mentioned a dunk. I think you said it was over Aaron Baines. I don't really think it was over anyone. 
everyone kind of cleared out of the way but it was a really cathartic dunk where he just said this is it i'm letting it all out and we're gonna get going yeah, and it worked that way somebody i think it was it Baines? i think he turned the corner on somebody and slammed it down and it was i feel like brown and horford were nearby but neither was particularly interested i'm not sure if Baines was on the floor he had a very a couple of minutes after Baines definitely was on the floor because he had the nice layup where he kind of finished around yeah. Baines and around the back of the backboard um but he upped the aggression he got to the line again, and he at least shot a much healthier 13 of 18 from the free throw line, which was a relief, although there were a couple of ugly free throws all the same. Oh, yeah. Um, jumper looked ugly early, looked great late. Shimmied. He shimmied <laughs> after his made tree, one of his two made trees, and he made purposeful passes. There was one play early-ish in the game I'm still going to say it was second quarter. I don't know if either of you will remember, but it was like a carbon copy of five or six that he had in game one where he got swarmed and there were men over. And I'm like, just kick it out, kick it out. And he didn't. And he went up and he got nothing out of it. And I was going, oh no, that's not good. And the second half came along and he was making those passes and he was off to making them to Middleton. And it just, it didn't just turn the game on its head. It obviously turned the series on its head. Yeah, I believed he would make these these mental adjustments. Like we, we, none of us doubt for everything else. We all know how smart Giannis is, and we all mm. know that it's impossible. He wouldn't need to be told. He would watch the film of that game, and be like, "Yeah, maybe I should pass in some of those situations." Even without a phone call from Thanasis, which was a great detail, and I love Thanasis for you know speaking the truth to his brother because his brother needed the truth, and it clearly made an impact. But his ability to just go, yeah, okay, I know what's wrong, and come out and deliver that performance. Incredibly reassuring after what happened in game one, but also, to me, just a sign of, yeah, he's not going back now. I I honestly don't think we're getting a game one or anything remotely close to a game one again from him in this series. Yeah, he looked like he was starting to figure it out, like, just what, how how to pass out and beat the Celtics defense. That they'd been throwing at him in game. It was like in real time. Right. He was he was learning how to beat the scheme for mm. our eyes in the second half, especially. And even in the first half, like he was just so much more aggressive going to the hoop. Like you mentioned, he had one field goal, I think, in the first quarter, but he He didn't. He had no field goals in the first quarter. Oh, he had no no field goals. Mm-hmm. He was still drawing fouls though. I think he was five of seven from the line or five of eight. Yeah, he's five of, I think he was five of eight, yeah, because he started off five of five, I think. And, and then, then he missed the next trade, that's right. The next but yeah, he was finding ways still to get it done. Um, like, Horford had, it's kind of, it's probably, we haven't done a whole lot of talking about, well, I guess we have, we've talked with Tatum, we talked about Irving, talked a little about Rozier. Um, it, this is obviously the spot to talk about Horford and him and Giannis are kind of uh, interconnected in this series. Horford struggled a little offensively even and he had five turnovers in this game and just didn't quite look as comfortable all around. And I really struggle even in the first half to pick out individual possessions where I could say, Oh, Horford was doing what he did in game one. He did have one block on Giannis, which actually might have been in the second half when the books got going, 
that was kind of reminiscent of that. But otherwise, when the Celtics were stopping Giannis, they're slowing him down early on, it was, I mean, three or four guys. Like, it was throwing everyone at him and him just not quite making the adjustments that, as you noted, he kind of just learned as the game progressed and started to make. But do do you feel I'm right on that? Or are we seeing anything... Obviously, it's a tough one even for Horford individually because the books made such dramatic shifts and the team as a whole struggled to counter them when you're Boston. But it did feel like a very different game for Al Horford in terms of what he was able to do defensively. And I almost didn't feel like he was quite as eager to get in front of Giannis. Maybe that's because Giannis was more aggressive. And I mean, I I talk about Al Horford being one of the smartest men in the league last time out. yeah, kind of tied to that would be if Giannis is really attacking the rim, it might be a good idea not to try and get in his way all the time. Uh, but I think he got away with some pretty glaring fouls that he may not continue to get away with. And even with that, he wasn't anywhere near as effective as he was in game one. All yeah. kind of agreed on that, yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, I agree. <clears throat> and... Do I feel that may still change? Like, if we're just before we go into the mailbag, if we're briefly to think of, okay, well, Giannis said 29 and 10. Um, he's figured it out. The books have figured it out. Is anything really springing to mind for you from a Celtics perspective of what their next adjustment is going to be? Because for me, I'm finding it pretty tough in a large part because I alluded to earlier, it wasn't just Giannis. It was. You can't just adjust to what he did because you have what Middleton did and you have what Bledsoe did. Like, I think they have a lot of work to do here, and unless they get a perfect game. And they already came into the series adjusting with Morris coming in the starting lineup. Like that That's was already point. That was already their kind of big move so far of the series. And yeah, there maybe rotation and of course this all depend this is dependent on like the Bucks perspective performance itself on both ends of the floor but i don't know i i just think it's a lot it's i i, I that's why i kind of viewed game one for them at least offensively as an outlier because defensively they're they're very good even last night for the first half at least they were still making things they were making the bucks work for it second half right away like you could just tell like they were being stretched beyond where they are were comfortable defending but I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, that's what that's that's what makes this series that so enticing that we just don't know where they're going to go yet. Yeah, I think the biggest adjustment is the uh, the Bismarcky curse. Um, just as ja Rule. We're Biz, Bismarck Wahlberg. I, I like you, Ben. You're going to come back. Uh, <laughs> before we move on to the mailbag. I don't know if I get out of Jordan here, but I want to push. I want to just to kind of, this is not to make us look stupid, although it will inevitably do that, but just to really kind of get a sense of things and to kind of track this, however long the series ends up being. Um, I expect some more optimism after game two, but if you're making series predictions now, what is your feeling? Or if you're, if you're not bold enough to do that, Tresky. Um, 
What are you expecting to see in Game Three? Do you think the Bucks could go out and take another one straight away in Boston? I well, I'm sticking with my prediction. I'm sticking with six. Which is six. So okay, yeah. so you're still Bucks and six. I think they take one in Boston. I'm just not sure if it's Game Three. What was your feeling before the series, Ben? Did you have a prediction? Uh, I said I was kind of between Bucks and six and Bucks and five before the series. Um, I still, I'm. I think six. We go in in six. <laughs> I think six, six is <laughs> six is logical right now. Although six does require closing out on the road, which is always a weird thing, which kind of brings seven into play. Yeah. Um, I think I think if I think the Bucks will split in Boston. I think that if I'm going to say it's game three over over game four, I think maybe carrying this momentum on the road is going to help, and then maybe the Celtics adjust, drop game four or uh, take home game four on their home courts. Uh, I think if there is a split, I think it would be Bucks win game three. I, I think game three is is really really crucial and i jordan stop laughing i know i i think the books can win i feel like we're gonna say that after every game (laughs) it's the most critical game of the series where where i'm going with this is i I do think if the books win game three i think this could still be over in five if if the celtics if the Celtics can't come up with a meaningful adjustment to what the books just show them, and the books come out and play the same way in game three, and basically be piling on them, and the Celtics be under incredible pressure at home uh, in front of those fans in game four, the books high on confidence, and Boston's still really searching for an answer. And look, Brad Stevens is really smart. Jordan may beg to differ. Uh, but I never said he wasn't we know you're the relative Stephen skeptic. You have been for a long time. Uh, if he figures out an adjustment to this, okay, Celtics could win game three, they could win game four, they could go and win the series. I'm not just seeing right now how if the books play well, I'm going to play their own game. I'm not saying Bledsoe has to play like that, Middleton has to play like that, but if the books play well, I'm playing the same style. I think they're going to be right there with a chance to win game three. And I think if they win game three, this could still be over in five. Yeah. Now, if they lose game three, it gets very tough to call, but I think it's going seven. Realistically, I maybe they could still pull out the... Uh, I mean, if, if they... Yeah, that's a lot. Like, that's... that's a lot. Um, so, you're sticking with six. I'm still struggling to see six. I think... I think it's going to be five or seven. And I honestly, I just held up six fingers. If it goes to seven, <laughs> if it goes to seven, then it's a, it's a different kind of scary where I'd get a lot less confident in saying, oh, the books are going to win this because it's one game and anything can happen. And that's just not a position you want to find yourself in. Um, look what happened last year. Well, look what happened last year. I was even going to say, look what happened last time uh, the books had a team that got past the first round and found themselves in the game seven. Like, hey, they beat the Hornets at seven. They did, but the last time, like the most recent example of them not being in the first round, playing game seven, like we all know what happened. We all know the various elements to play in for that. Um, 
I do think they're going to win game three, though, and I think that gives them a real chance of five. Mailbag. Um, the first one from at Orcaddy Jr. <laughs> Am I officially banned from winning six since the book's won and I'm not on the post-game pod? <laughs> You're doing a pretty solid job of reading between those lines there, Ron. Um, we'll, re- we'll revisit in future. I think... He's basically in like uh, in the sin bin. I think that's that's the way I put that. Is it sin bin in hockey? Is that what it's called? Are you talking about the penalty box? That's that's the word. I was trying to make sure I sin get bin, on the. But the sin bin does sound like something. Well, the sin bin is in is in rugby. I know that is, and it's it's in sports over this way. So I was just making sure I found. <laughs> if no one got the sin bin reference, penalty box is where Rowan is right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's to be determined how much longer he's in the penalty box. He's locked in. We may slide some food under the door mm-hmm. if he's nice, uh, but we'll take it from there. From at John Dolza, do you think the books stick with switching the majority of this series? Seems like books Twitter got this one right as a much needed adjustment. I'll pass over the first part of this question to Bodie in a second, but I want to address the second part of this question. I <laughs> Books Twitter, and I say this is a part of Books Twitter, not as smart as Books Twitter would like to think it is. Um, you know, armchair coaching is kind of kind of easy. I don't know if anyone's noticed how all these coaches always make bad decisions, and I make good decisions from the safety of my own home. Um, the books could have won this without adjusting. Still, I think that's a possibility. Um, the person who got this right in terms of adjustment was Bud. That's who got it right. Bud and the assistants are the ones who made it. <laughs> like, we could say Books Twitter got it right. We could say that about every single decision ever made by the books because there's just enough arguing, really, um, and enough difference of opinion that someone is always right about something. So, I'm not going to chalk this victory up to Books Twitter as much as I'm going to chalk it up to Bud and the players. That's just me. You're gonna chalk it up to Bud Twitter. Well, hmm. that is that just me? I don't know. That might bleed into other nefarious areas. <laughs> I mean, definitely narrowed since uh, the second round. <laughs> well, I think it got very, very broad again yesterday. It's amazing. Like, I, I mean, that, maybe that's part of the reason why that particular framing that question just kind of made me feel like, yeah, let's talk about that. It's because. Uh, it honestly felt like we were 48 minutes away from Fire Bud. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even really joking, sprouting up yesterday. It was just, I'm like, what is going on here? What is with the mass hysteria? It's like, oh yeah, we're still pretending like we don't know how to be here, which is kind of true. But well, it's just then, like, then the game just... happens and he makes the adjustments and they win by 21 and it's like, oh, I love Bud so much. Yeah, It's like everyone just, I can't do the extremes of emotion. I mean, it was just an echo chamber of people saying the same thing over and over. Bud doesn't make adjustments in the playoffs. Bud doesn't make adjustments. You know, so everybody's just feeding off of that. Which, as someone time. as someone who didn't think he would even make an adjustment for game two, I have always been adamant that narrative is nonsense. <laughs> it is it is made up. There is no basis for it. The basis of not making adjustments was not having adjustments available to him and people forget that. It's the equivalent to why is Pat Connaughton playing 30 minutes? Like, 
Why wasn't he making adjustments to the Hawks? Oh, because the NYPD broke Tabo Cephalosh's leg and they didn't have a LeBron stopper to pull out of thin air and they were set up to not really be the best of rebounding teams and they played Tristan Thompson and they weren't the best three points, uh, weren't the best team in terms of three point defense. And when Tristan Thompson would grab the rebound, he'd kick it out to LeBron, who would swing it to Kevin Love. And Bud was there, like, oh, let me just make an adjustment for this. Uh, like, it's just, <laughs> it was nonsense. And yeah. it's, a, it's an example of how, like, good or bad, people can just get wrapped up in this stuff and it just goes one extreme to the other. And um, this is. <laughs> This is an area I think we've probably talked about at length that I'm not going to go much further on, but because on various subjects we talked about the extremes, just get nothing out of it. So my general advice to book fans would be, let's just try and be even keel for the rest of the series. I'm sure they're all going to take this message on board and take some deep breaths and just be like, oh, we lost that one. That's okay. We'll win the next one. And vice versa. You know, it'll all be fine. We'll just see what happens. I know books Twitter. That's, that's exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, good. Um, so to both of you, the first part of that question, do you think the books stick with switching for the majority of this series? Does that kind of depend on if we get a successful counter adjustment? I mean, I guess if we don't, yeah, they are going to stick to it because why would they change? But Yeah, I just, I just don't see an adjustment the Celtics could make that would make the books go back to the traditional defense that they were trying in the first game. I I don't know. It just seems like the Bucks have the personnel to execute this so well against the Celtics, who are a jump-shooting team. Like, they're one of the few teams that you, it's tough to run the traditional, you know, drop coverage scheme against just because they're so elite. Like, especially, like, you talk about guys like Al Horford, Kyrie Irving, they're just so good. Like, I think they were one of – they're one of the bottom teams in attacking the rim during the regular season. So like they're one of the few teams that that defense doesn't match up well against anyway. So I think as far as I can foresee, I think they're going to stick with switching for the rest of the season or rest of the series. You are yeah, you're I, I would say rest of the season, by the way, because, you know, well, <laughs> well the rest of the Celtic season. Anyway, Jordan, I would agree. I think, I think we, there may be occasions where, specifically if Brooke Lopez is on the floor, we'll see more of what they've done for the you know, majority of the year. But outside of that, I think if they get more experimental in terms of lineups and all that stuff, all that jazz, um, I, think, I think the switching will prevail for the rest of the series. I think for the Celtics, the biggest adjustment they need to make going to Game 3 is the adjustment the books largely had to make from Game 1 to 2, and that's they need Good to job. play better. <laughs> play better. Um, because maybe they have a better chance against the switching scheme if they don't just play terrible. Yeah. Like, uh, we have to find out, and we don't know for sure that the two things are 100% related until we see it happen twice. I, I think that would be my opinion of it. Like, did Kyrie Irving, is Kyrie Irving just incapable of playing against the book switching? Or did he have a bad game at the time when the books also switched and that's what the result looked like? Like when he comes back and has made the adjustment, the team's made the adjustment for game two, do we all of a sudden find, oh, uh, yeah, he likes shooting over Urson or blowing by him or, yeah, Nikola Mirotic, not that scary for Kyrie Irving. You know, that's kind of the starting point is they need to try and play better 
very, very basic, simple, not all that helpful advice, but we don't know how much one thing worked in the larger scheme of things until we see it happen a couple of times. Like maybe this was just the Derek, like there, there's actually every reason to just basically discard game one and two and let's pretend yeah, they for- never happened for both teams because they both just had incredibly bad games and another game that may just have been so far in the upsender scale that you'd have to call it an outlier so what happens when they meet in the middle like that could be the next five games of the series yeah completely agree i think it's so rare that you see that the first two games of a series can have one team's best player Giannis, have such a terrible terrible game and then have the next night Kyrie irving who's looked at as the celtics best player although I would argue it's Al Horford uh, <laughs> have such an awful night. It's just, you, you really can't take anything away from either game until you see it happen twice. <clears throat> from at J or underscore Andrews 88, basically along the same lines, we probably won't even need to answer because we kind of have um, JR says our switching defense is all caps impregnable. What, <laughs> what do you guys think they can do to beat it? Um, Play better. <laughs> Play better <laughs> is where I'd start if I was Brad Stevens. I was to do the bud thing and be, hey, guys, play better. Um, impregnable may just be a little carried away, but let's hope not. Let's let's hope that it's unlocked. Judging by Ursan's defensive rating through three quarters. <laughs> that is about as impregnable as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um I do think the one interesting thing that could come from this, let's say this does work, I'm not saying it's going to just blow the Celtics out of the water, but if the books were to advance for this series, having had to switch for larger spells of time, I wonder does that open up, you know, whoever it is, Sixers, Raptors next round, where they just actually have a much more natural meld of their two potential schemes, where they don't give an opponent as much of a chance to go, oh, they're dropping, oh, they're switching. It can actually be much more fluid than that because it hasn't really been a feature. And in part, it's always felt like because they were holding back switching for when they really needed it. But they're a team that's just, they were the best defense in the league dropping off. And then if they're just this incredible force switching, if you get to a point where you can just be like, Oh yeah, okay. Uh, out of this timeout, we're gonna switch. Out of this timeout, like, what do opposing teams do then? Like, that's the defensive potential that we've all spent years talking about. A team built around Giannis, Chris, guys like. Let's that. take it even further. Let's go zone. Let's go zone. Tim Fraser plays forty-eight minutes. <laughs> we win the series. Boom. I'm not ruling anything out. It's just Bonzi can't suit up for his forty-three minutes. That's the problem there. But Powell can, but he goes back. Powell cannot at the moment. <laughs> um, from John Dolza, do you think Pat will continue getting as many minutes as George Hill, or is Pat squeezed out if Malcolm returns? I feel like you'll probably both agree with me on this. I don't think he'll be squeezed out. He is clearly a bud favorite. He's reliable in a lot of ways. First man off the bench. <laughs> he might be their best. Uh, obviously, I'm not including Malcolm in this because when everyone's healthy, he's in a different category altogether. But of kind of role playing wings, he might be the best of their pass, shoot, dribble, you know, that kind of the mantra that Horse has talked about when adding guys. 
he's the guy who at least has shown himself to be able to do a little bit of everything enough of that where you could say yeah okay i get i get what they see in that guy when he plays well and it's obvious what he's throw a baseball he can throw a football (laughs) he is very literally an all-rounder um whether george hill gets more minutes at some point is interesting to me because george hill is just like just killing everyone he plays against now for a matter of weeks just teams cannot score when George Hill's on the floor. No. Best two-man combo was first of all, first of all, it's Ursan and Brook in the playoffs. Then it's Eric Bledsoe and George Hill. Is that just Bucks or is that entire playoffs? Just Bucks, but let me look it up. It would probably take their what is um what is Ursan and Brooks net writing? It's nothing crazy. It's something crazy. Like, like 55.7 points. And they probably played decent-ish minutes together? Something like that. Uh, they probably, the books are unlikely. Well, maybe not. They did play the Pistons in the first round. Um, so maybe they do have the best two-man lineups overall. But it, it's interesting that, you know, Ursa and Hill are both involved in those two. And I think that's kind of been very much in line with how the bench impacts have looked recently. They're definitely the two guys who perform best. Malcolm is the real wild card, and it just if Malcolm what if Malcolm comes back and plays really well and looks like Malcolm? I don't think any of us are really prepared for that possibility. And if it happens, it's just kind of like oh right, yeah, this is this is fun. This is a completely different level that I don't think the Celtics can account for. We're all kind of naturally assuming, and I think we should, that it's going to take him some time. What if that time has kind of been, you know, logged already in practice and Malcolm comes back looking pretty ready to go in game three? Um, Then what would the Celtics do with that? Like, the Celtics can make adjustments for game three, and if Brogdon is now added into the mix for the books, well, that's just something else they're going to have to figure out an adjustment for. Uh, have you found that, Jordan? No. <laughs> I did my very best to kill time there, so we're going to move on now. Yeah, uh, uh, right, from an OG which game will the book steal? Game three, game four, or both? Um, come on, you know what I'm thinking on this. <laughs> I'm going to take both of them. You guys, game three or game four? Yeah, I think if if not both... Game three, definitely. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to go game three. You were leaning game four earlier. I was. But I had a change of heart. I mean, if you like them to win game four, Jordan, and you like them to win game three. Five. (laughs) (laughs) From at MF Lucas Villain, what were you able to get done between the Miritich steal at half court and him getting to the basket? The body remember this play? Yes, I do. The one green. (laughs) <laughs> like we have uh, obviously the description of Brook Lopez's drives as being glacial uh, this was so much slower than that when he even slowed up I think he tried to get the foul to, like, on the yep. uh, up and he didn't get it but it made it even slower than it was it. like he was it was like <laughs> it was in slow motion it was like there was a half speed setting you could put on and he was moving uh, truly incredible just how Slow. Hey. The basket went in, or the ball went in the basket. It did. I'm not <laughs> complaining. That's all that matters. 
We saw a Zaza woman fast break eons ago, so I nothing compares to that. <laughs> That's true. Different kind of wrecking crew. Uh, from uh, MK Robert, what what additional adjustments could be made to get Giannis even better looks in game three and beyond? Was there something different in the second half that got him loose? I think yeah, both of you touched on the difference in the second half was he was just uh, learning. He was reading uh, what the Celtics were doing and getting more comfortable with it and understanding how to beat it. I mean, that's I think it didn't. It felt like he was playing the angles rather than try to play the touch in like even in like the first half because a lot of those finishes until that dunk were like kind of like fling him up and maybe get it to go down if you don't get the call, but. I felt like it was it was more Giannis like in terms of oh he gets that extra step and he gets that easy finish like he just you know it, it was more characteristic of what we've seen from him for throughout the year. Yeah, and the defensive stops on the other end too, kind of yes. leading into those halfway transition semi fast break, you know, just areas where he can attack. I think that really got him going too in that quarter especially, um, and then by doing that it kind of got him back in the right headspace to where he needed to be. Yeah, I'm not sure on what can get him better looks because I feel his looks are pretty good. And how many free throws did he shoot again? He had 18, I think, for the game. Yeah, he had 18. So, I mean, (laughs) maybe if he wasn't fouled those nine times, they'd be pretty good looks too. Um, Likely right around the rim. Finish with 29 points. I'm not sure how much more they have to do there. I mean, he's not going to get the kind of looks he got against the Pistons. Like, he might not get the same amount of free throw attempts on the road. He may not, but... He also didn't get him in game I don't know. one extent he did. That's true. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a good point. And I, I don't know. I feel like... Obviously, there are some weird examples. I'm not that interested in talking about this because... I. It's just the most boring thing ever, and it's every. It seems like it's every other series, and maybe it's this series too. If you're like listening to Tommy Heinsohn and you're on Celtics Twitter, uh, in fact, it is. I, I've seen Matt Moore was. Are we getting an audit? That, Are we that. auditing? <laughs> Are we doing that? Where's Daryl well, Morey? <laughs> I think as soon as you, as a as a team, as a player, I don't think either of you see um, Giannis quotes on this today. No. Oh, the physicality thing. Yeah, yeah. The on the fouls. Let me let me pull it up here. Um, for me, because my, my thought in the last couple of days is like for all these teams, the second you just become obsessed with fouls and what calls you're not getting and you're complaining, you've lost. Like that is the moment you've lost because you've stopped trying to win the game, actually playing basketball. Um. So, uh, Vincent Goodwill of Yahoo Sports has Yan's quotes from today. So Giannis on the Celtics physicality, you can play to the limits of failing. They definitely play to the limits of, in parentheses, flagrant. And then back to Giannis, fouling. Um, so the question was obviously about flagrant fouling. He talks to the limits. Giannis also adds, now you got to effing play. You can't complain to the refs. you got to play. And I was kind of like, great. That's the MVP. Like... <laughs> That's uh, talk about understand the situation, understand where you are. It's like, what are you going to achieve out of five games of complaining? Oh, you're going to go home. You know, it won't be five games because you go home in four. Like, I don't know what the Rockets' deal was. 
they're losing much worse than they would have if they hadn't just got involved in all of that and they just played. But yeah, I think part of like what what can Yanis get in terms of looks? You got to say, oh, if he wasn't being fouled as much, we could be calling them good looks. I think series find a pattern for refereeing though. And I think it's probably discussed amongst officials where, you know, generally, unless anything particularly crazy is happening, and unless you get some real uh, wildcard officials thrown into the mix, which I don't know who the books have for game three or game four, but you fall into this pattern where things are generally officiated a certain way. The way that's going right now, I don't think it's favoring the books, but I don't think it's unfavorable either. I think it's pretty fair. Yeah. And that's all the books can ask for. If they get a fair whistle... It's enough to be a non-issue. Well, if there's Vin, you've now met the, the frequent third member of the Win6 podcast, man. Um, like, if they get a fair whistle with the way the two teams are matched up stylistically, with Boston not wanting to drive and the books looking to drive over and over again, the books are going to have a major advantage at the, at the free draw line. So fair whistle is going to win the series, even one slightly working against them would still give them a lot of opportunities. Uh, from at MK, Robert again, was Planet Pop bad in game two? No. I, I think, think at the beginning, he like first half, I definitely was... Uh, the count of minutes in the first game bugged me just mm-hmm. because, you know, I realized that you don't have many options with Sterling playing as badly as he was. And, you know, you can only... You can't really match George Hill up defensively on a wing uh, consistently. Like, he can hold his own. But just I wanted in game one for them to play the starters more minutes a little bit from what we saw and kind of trim down the bench to the end. Like, the end guys especially trim down the minutes. Uh, At the beginning of game two, I was feeling very similar, um, especially with all the, you know, kind of just – heady mistakes he was making on defense, but he did not by any means, I don't think have a bad game overall. He really kind of picked it up from there, was making good defensive adjustments, not doubling people, um, staying on his man. He had 11 boards, I think. In the yeah, game. he, he did. Pretty did he rebounder. Like, yeah. I think that is a, an interesting point to bring up just about the rotation, because one of the most common questions we were getting coming into the series is, oh, you know, how many guys is the rotation going to run? Is it going to be eight deep, nine deep, ten deep? Like, coming out of game two there, I, I think it could be widely agreed that there's nine guys who deserve and make sense to play right now. We have the starting five last night. Oh, well, actually, no, it's not. It's eight, because Miritich is in the starting five. Okay, well, still, you've got eight guys. Now you're going to add Brogdon, and you're going to stretch it to nine again, and kind of a logical nine where you're like, who am I going to say to cut out of this? Like, this is, we've talked about this from way back, and this is Bud's tendencies, but it's also the book's depth. It's kind of like, your depth is one of your strengths. If they have to play Gordon Hayward for 30 minutes when he's a minus 31, or 31 minutes while he's a minus 30, um, why don't you use the thing that means you don't have to do things like that and use your depth? Like, there, there is a time where you do go, okay, let's go one deeper and make sure we're not just playing a guy who's struggling because that's what our rotation is and we don't really have the options we'd like beyond that at that spot. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic as well. 
Um, because I think you can make a case if Brogdon is back, you're at nine, and that would be nine if we're freezing out Sterling, which, based on the last two games, would make sense, but that hasn't been the way it's been recently. So, definitely want to watch. Um, for MK Robert again, is this the series where the Bucks finally win in six? <laughs> it could be. I, I still think it's difficult. Uh, I outlined why earlier, but it certainly could be, not beyond the realms of possibility. I think they'll have a chance to win in six. Yeah, I think, like you said, it's going to be easier to win at home than on the road. But if we're confident enough in these bucks, especially with the scheme that they've had, you know, they could have an off game, which makes it go to six. If, you know, one of Bledsoe or Chris struggles or even Giannis, I think I'm confident that they'd be able to close it out on the road if they need to. So it could go to six. But like you said, it's going to be easier to go out on at home than on the road. So, yeah, and I do. The reason I said I think they'll have the chance and it'll be in their hands to do that is because I'd like the chances of at least splitting in Boston, and then if they win Game Five, well, okay, you're going there with a chance to close it out. So, I mean that, and that's really the position you want to get to because you're in the spot where are they going to lose two in a row? Like it would take the pressure really getting to them. Not impossible mm-hmm. in the game seven, but if you can just get to that point, get a split in Boston, win your next home game, like you're very much 80, 90% of the way there. Will they have mm-hmm. the swagger to close on the road? It's yet to be That's determined. Is that a question that former Celtic Ryan Hollins could be asking? Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> <laughs> From at MKE, Robert, do you think Bud will have Lopez switch later in this series as one last adjustment or switching one true forward him on the floor as far as they will go? They switched to Lopez last night. Um, Not just like very odd possession here or there. There were some spells where they tried it. And we talked about this. He's actually about as good as it gets for a big in doing that as... Much as that doesn't seem he, obvious, he can test shots. Like, it's, yeah, he's just—he's a gigantic human being. It, but he just doesn't. Well, he's like massive. I mean, if he if he moves his arm in any direction, he's not going to make it easy for you. You know, <laughs> wherever you are relative to him, if he extends his arm, he's going to close the space. He's going to make it uncomfortable. He had See, that he one does. actually where, which was a really bad three point foul he gave away. Oh yeah, who was that on? Is it? Was it Kyrie? It could have been Kyrie. That wasn't the Morris one where he stepped in, was it? It was the Morris one he stepped in. And you're just kind of like, ugh. But I I don't know. I Lopez's role is interesting. And I think if we're to give that kind of a little bit of thought, if game two proves to be the template and it plays into what the books want to do, there's not a natural way where you're like, oh, this is what we're going to do with Brooke. But he's also just too good for them to kind of phase out of their plan in any way. I'm actually, you know, what? I'm going to run into the next question here because it's going to bring us right into this. And we could talk about it a little bit more. From at Eaton Books, do you, do you bench Brooke and start Ursan or Miritich when Brogdon is back and starting? I would add when Brogdon is back and starting could... Could be quite a way away and may not be in this series. Um, back to Eason. 
Knowing his tendencies, do you think that is something Bud would ever even consider? I'm going to go with no. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think so Like that That's extreme. Like that's that takes another game that one last resort-y. Yeah, I mean, that's you're having to really shock things again. That's a Jason Kidd esque adjustment. Yeah. You it's know, random deep. random it's Tuesday deep. night in March, Jason Kidd's the coach. Oh, the starting center's benched. Uh, and there's no traditional center playing anymore. This is new. Get ready, Lakers fans. <laughs> uh <laughs> That was a really sinister laugh I had there, but <laughs> I couldn't contain it. Um, it was guttural, too. It was, like, it, was. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was quite evil. I mean, but we suffered through it, so it's someone else's turn, surely. Um, the mint tray passes on to LA. <laughs> I don't think Brooke gets benched, but he did only play 24 minutes last night, and he may find himself around the 20 minute mark. Which yeah, is not a lot that. for him, but it's also enough that like he, he did make three three. There points. have been games like that. It's it was a rare few, but yeah. You know. Yeah, and like I said, if you if you're switching, you're naturally gonna move to playing Ursan some more minutes at the five next to Giannis. That's worked out really well. So I don't I don't see him ever dropping out of the starting lineup, but I could see him exiting a little earlier, depending on the matchup. So from at Eaton Books again, when the books win it all, does Adam come to Milwaukee for a live pod during slash after the parade? Is that when Jordan reveals his true identity? I'll let Jordan <laughs> answer his part first. Possibly. It's not possible. We had this a few weeks ago. We agreed. Oh, we, did? We? we did. Yeah. Well, I said it and I kind of, if they win a championship, you know, you'll take the mask off. And then it reveals to be Joe Prunty. No. Ghost Protocol. Um, will I be coming to Milwaukee for a live pod during after the parade? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am right around then. I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of it now, but right around then I'm going to be in the middle of my master's dissertation. So I'm going to be, one, very busy, and two, as a kind of a related thing of that, I am incredibly poor. Um, so, no. Master, you hate parades, don't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we did talk about parades before, so I don't know if that actually came from something or if you're just making something up. I was just making it up. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I've been at one. I generally try mm. to avoid them. It's normally you a St. Patrick's Day parade. parade. It sounds like. I'm like, uh, once you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, but a championship parade, I mean, you've got to see one of them first to do it justice, right? Uh, but no, this won't be the one for me. Uh, unless it, it won't be the one for me. I can do a pod. Jordan can be on a float um, <laughs> at the back of the parade. I'll be dying the river green. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And while he's doing that, we can record a pod. How about that? Yeah. Um, from Eden Books again, what happens if the books tree ball isn't falling? Are you concerned with the lack of production in the paint compared to our usual selves? I think now the decision they've made, and I don't think they'll go back from it, is um, we're just going to shoot enough trees that if it's not falling, still enough of them are falling. <laughs> like That's what the game plan was on Tuesday night. And they were falling, so they win by 21. But if they hadn't quite been falling, 
they might have won by five or by three, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bucks won the free throw matchup in the first game for sure, and then I think they barely won it in the second. So even though the points in the paint isn't quite what it is at its usual point, I think the Bucks are still going to be able to be aggressive enough. I mean, obviously, depending on the way that the games are officiated, but if we see what we saw in game two, I think that it's definitely possible that it just won't matter. I also feel like more pain points are coming. I think the Celtics are going to have to overcorrect somewhat to what Chris was doing. <laughs> and yeah. just to the idea, okay, the books are going to shoot 47 trees, was it? Yeah, 47. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to do something about that. If I was Boston, I'd be in panic mode about Chris Middleton. So. <laughs> yeah, they Can't. undoubtedly are. I mean... Nurtured strikes. Spent so much time worrying about so much time worrying about Giannis that the guy who has really hurt them, um, they may set themselves up to lose this series to Chris Middleton. Like which, all, it was like an All Star game out there. Yeah, it was. But, but based on what happened last year, if they were to let Middleton beat them, you'd be like, oh, you know, nice job and all coming up with a way not to let Giannis beat you, but. Did you really need proof that Chris Middleton could do enough to beat you in the playoffs? Like he almost did it with all people, no coach, and <laughs> much worse teammates a year ago. What was yeah. going to happen this time? Uh, lastly, and we've really given Ben the full experience. He's listened to lots of these, but now he gets to know just what it feels like when the pod has gone on this long. I promised him before we started. I said. Yeah, I don't feel like it will be that long. Don't plan on it. Here we are. <laughs> you should have, I assume you knew. Like, this is just what happens. Jordan and I never go, oh, let's do two hours of an episode. This just happens. We're giving people. You know, we're very much, we're here to provide for the listeners. Right, Jordan? Well, we could do in piecemeal. You can go a half hour there, 15 minutes there, 45. That, that requires yeah. even more work. We've had people suggest this in the past. It would make uh, their life better if they had it every day. Um, respect to the Lockdown Books crew. Yeah. I don't have time for that. <laughs> we did two last year. <laughs> that was like crazy. <laughs> we did. And it's like, you understand to do that takes, you know, I record the block and then, okay, I'm going to edit this today. I'm going to edit this. I'm going to go and put this up. Don't have time for that. So you get it all in one go or not at all. Like it or lump it. <sighs> Lastly, from David Dunn 21. Does the winner of Game 3 likely win the series unless the team could somehow go back in time and right the wrongs of the past in a satisfying and cathartic fashion? I'm going to rule out the last part. Although if it happens, it would definitely be an interesting development. Um, Yeah, I, I do think the winner of Game 3 could win this series. I, I think if the Celtics win Game 4 remains important because the Bucks would have the chance to win that and have home court back. Mm-hmm. If the Bucks win game three, they've got home court back. They've got a chance to extend that advantage in game four. You know, if the Bucks win, I think it's over. If the Celtics win, I think they're in a really good position, although they kind of still need another one. Yeah, I think as long as they split in Boston, it's a win. Um, I do think, obviously, game three is p- pivotal, but. Yeah, I think if they managed to knock one off in Boston, 
I think they'll be set up pretty well. I think if the Celtics win game three, they don't win the series. If the Bucks win game three, <laughs> total homer answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is that was my literal answer. I uh, I did come up with some logic for it, but my answer was: if the Celtics win Game Three, no, Game Three doesn't matter. If the Bucks win it, the series is over. It's over. It's over. Um, I guess all we can do is wait and see. We'll be back after Game Three. Um, we have a guest lined up. I think provisionally, we'll see. If nothing else, it'll be me and Jordan. Um, we. I think we have another guest. I can let you in on the fact that it's not Rowan Cotty. Don't worry, everyone. Um, but we'll be back post-Game 3 to break down that one and look ahead to Game 4 and whatever that may bring. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to Snapple Podcast, follow us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, now, see, I tried to do it in a more natural order for that, and I, I can't remember the others. Do whatever it is on Stitcher and whatever it is on TuneIn Radio. Uh, and you should also follow us on Twitter at WinIn6Podcast. That's Win in number 6 podcast. You can read mine, Jordan, and also Ben's writing at BehindTheWorkPass.com. Uh, we'll have comprehensive coverage there every day throughout the series, just as we do throughout the rest of the year. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.